0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. You will notice a discrepancy between the title in the bulletin, which I have to turn in by Wednesday, and the outline, which I turn in on Friday. Uh, I decided to take a smaller portion of the passage because there was nestled in chapter 8 some very, I think, uh, timely words from God to Isaiah and to us that I I just wanted to pause and spend a little time there before we go on to chapter 9, that grand chapter 9 that tells us the light, Christ, who will be born. You'll notice in Isaiah, in our study, that there are two different streams. There are long-term prophecies about Jesus that we have the blessing of uh, seeing be fulfilled in history, and then seeing how Jesus' is coming so affects and so defines us as Christians today, and the New Testament expresses that, we have that ability to see the whole picture, because we see it prophesied, 700 years realized, and then all the years after, the impact of Jesus' is coming that first time. Uh, but for those who received Isaiah's prophecy at first, many would not see that fulfillment, so there is another stream of prophecy that happens in the book that's more immediate for the people who are receiving it. You'll see here another child is promised. This time commentators think the prophetess is Isaiah's wife. That she'll, be, she'll have a child that will confirm the prophecy that God will make about Israel in that time, within a year or two period. So you have this changing of long-term prophecy about Jesus, but at the same time, short-term prophecies for the people who are receiving the book for the first time immediately and won't see those ultimate fulfillments. So understand that as we work through this uh, wonderful prophecy of Isaiah. I will look at all of chapter 8 today. It's around page 872 in your, your uh, pew Bible, but have your Bibles open to the whole chapter. For now, I will read just a few verses They're put on your outline. Hear God's holy word. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, your people have always found difficulty proclaiming your name in a lost world that denies you or even opposes you. Lord, many Christians in the world today face uh, terrible persecution and pain because they are identified with Christ. They live in a place that does not love you or even hates you, yet they have been called by your name. While the church in America has enjoyed much freedom over the years, the situation has been changing in a seemingly rapid way. And as we come to this chapter in Isaiah and we see a remnant of your people in a place that is really on the road to judgment, you give them wisdom, Lord, as to how they should live in such a time. Please send your spirit afresh so that we might understand this text and how it motivates us to faithfulness, it guides us and directs us in a way that may be similar. I lift this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. The historical context, hopefully you know by now, as we've been working through Isaiah. I know that's one of the things I was most ignorant of when I started studying this book several years ago. What was the context? The the language is so lofty, it's so poetic, and it's so beautiful. Uh, You almost don't need to know the context to just appreciate uh, the message that's being spoken. But to fully appreciate the message and see it applied, it really helps to understand the backdrop in which Isaiah is called to ministry and how he's writing. Israel, as a people, were called by God's name, called out of the nations to bear God's character as an evidence to the nations that he is the true and living God. Now, they failed that test, you might say, over and over and over again, into finality, eventually, as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem in their disbelief. But Israel has a special place for such a long time because God is going to bring Messiah from Israel. And so the nation under Saul was powerful and growing. Then under David, it really reached its apex as far as its, the fear of the nations against Israel, knowing that they could not uh, confront Israel without God coming down upon them. You might say that was the heyday of Israel under David. And then his son Solomon carries out at least the prosperity of Israel. It's this unified power in the world. But after Solomon... The kingdom divides. Many prophets are called to bring unity to them, but there's a real division because the ten tribes to the north take on a new king, have a new capital. That's why when we read Isaiah, oftentimes it will refer to Damascus or it will refer to Ephraim or Israel as the northern ten tribes. To the south, there are just two tribes. They're called Judah or Jerusalem where the temple is. That's the place where you would think Israel should be. And they're divided, ten tribes to the north, two to the south. And eventually the north falls to Assyria. And we'll see in this text, and it will play out in other places, it's the will of God to use Assyria to bring that judgment on the ten tribes, to the point where they're scattered, lost forever, the lost tribes. But two tribes remain, and the tribe that matters most for prophecy's sake, and for the covenant of God's sake, is the tribe of Judah. Because it's from Judah, Jesus will come. We are in an era now where the kingdom is divided and now the north is about to be taken. and Israel is foreca- or Isaiah is forecasting this captivity, uh, this oppression from the Assyrians, this scattering. They'll deport people so that they no longer have a national identity. In the south, watching this happen as the Assyrians are coming closer and closer, the north is scrambling to try to make alliances to have people come help them, have pagan nations come help them against Assyria, and all that eventually fails, and Isaiah prophesies this. And it's a warning to the south, and especially to the faithful in the south who will still hear God's word, that they have to obey, they have to repent, they have to turn to God in order to be, to be preserved. Dark times. There's no question, dark times. Dark times. But laden throughout the dark times is a message of light, of ultimate light that will come in Christ. It is always light for us whatever times we find ourselves. In fact, what I would like us to see are the verses nestled in the middle of the chapter. We'll see the whole of the chapter, but in the middle of the chapter you have a message that really is timeless and timely for us. Because I think there are some parallels that we can draw. When we find ourselves as Christians... A people within a people. We're called to follow God no matter what befalls us. It's easy to see this on a national level. How it is that Christians are falling out of favor with the nation in which we live. But you all know on a more personal level how this may work. Maybe you work in a place where you're the only Christian. or There are only a few people who trust Christ where you are. You're called to live for God. Fully for God, as we heard in last week's conference. How do we do that when we're living in a place that's hostile? You're working in a place that may be hostile to what you believe. Maybe you're going to a school where everyone around you, or it seems like everyone around you, uh, they're, they're not believers, or they may even make fun of what you believe or, or press on you because you say you believe it. Maybe your classmates don't believe. Maybe your teachers don't believe. And you find yourself in the minority where the majority seem to be against belief in Christ, even, to that point. Maybe you're in a family, a big family. You love your family, but you become a Christian. But the majority of your family, they're not Christians, and you spend time with them. And it's difficult because you feel that sense of being opposed. You know, others think what you think is wrong, or it's silly, or it's foolish. And you have to be faithful to God. How do you do it with all that pressure? Everybody can relate with some pressure, when they call upon the name of Christ. And I think for the church, it'll become more so in the days to come. How can we, as a minority living in a certain population, live faithfully to God, for God? Because Isaiah is writing to prophesy something that will happen to Israel. But there are those who are with Isaiah, who are hearing his message and the message that God gives to him, the faithful remnant who believe God's word, They want to honor God, but they're going to have to suffer for what the nation's doing. They're not going to escape it completely. But God still gives them direction, how they can be faithful, even in the midst of a place that's so opposed to God. I think it's a good message for us, and I think the words that God gives to Isaiah are expressly relevant for us. Let's look first at what happens. In the first eight verses, you'll see, Uh, The national sin of Israel coming down now upon the people. The people will feel the brunt of their rebellion, of their waywardness. Most of it's going to come in this episode on the northern kingdom. That's the real focus of Isaiah's prophecy. It's a way to hopefully warn Judah to go a different route. We see here a nation's sin bringing tough times for all her citizens. And that always happens whether you're a Christian in a non-Christian world or not. If you live in that place, you will feel some of the hardship that that place undergoes because that's what happens with sin. Uh, sin brings death. It brings misery. It brings pain. It brings estrangement, insecurity. It will have to deal with the level of that. And we see that shown here. Look at verse 1 and following. You'll see this play out. The Lord's giving now this vision, this revelation to Isaiah. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet And write on it in common characters. This would be a method of prophecy. Sometimes it was written out. Sometimes a vision would be given and the prophet would just simply relay it. In this case, it's so poignant that he's to take a large tablet, write on it in common characters. That is so everybody can understand. Belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. That will be the name of the child that he'll have. And I will get reliable witnesses. So to confirm this is the word of God, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. So it has all the markings of revelation where the prophet's given a word, he makes it public, he puts it in print, and he has witnesses. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. We understand this to be Isaiah's wife. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. So it connects back to the name on the tablet. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that's the northern kingdom, and the spoil of Samaria, again, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So she'll conceive and have a child, and before the child can say, basically say, mommy and daddy, Assyria will have come and taken the north. It's interesting how this parallels because we had the picture of a baby being a sign of something else in chapter 7. This is different. That was a long-term prophecy of Jesus to come. Now for the people receiving this word is a short-term prophecy that will happen in their lifetime and they'll see through the prophet's life itself what God will do. Now remember something very important. How is it that a long-term prophecy like the prophecy of Jesus 700 years before, how would that help the faithful in the days of Isaiah? Remember that our goal as believers who are redeemed is to see God vindicated, to see God worshipped, to see God glorified, to see all mankind acknowledge God. So if I were to tell you that there will be a day when all will be vindicated, the name of God will be celebrated in love, you would be comforted now whether you saw it come to fruition or not. Because your desire as one who is redeemed is to see the Redeemer glorified. Just like if I say to you and you know Jesus will come back. You don't know if that will happen in your lifetime, but it gives you great joy and encouragement to live now knowing that Christ will come again. And this is true for those remnant few who trusted in God's word. As Isaiah speaks this word in chapter 7 about a virgin conceiving and having a child. But we are people. An immediate sign was needed that God was real, and so God gives Isaiah this word about his wife having this child and what it would mean about their coming judgment. And it was a dark message. It wasn't one that was as encouraging as the message in chapter 7. Now, the light will come again in chapter 9, but in chapter 8, the reality of the here and the now comes upon them. They're living in a place that no longer worships God, no longer is devoted to God no longer interested in the name of God being exalted over the other nation's gods. That's the reality for them, where they were living at that time, despite the glorious truth of Jesus coming eventually. Look at verse 5 as he continues, that is, God continues to give Isaiah this prophecy. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over resin and the son of Ramaliah. Now pause, to remember who these people are. The waters of Shiloh, that's figurative of the beautiful flowing brooks and creeks and rivers that come into the promised land. It's fed by all sorts of, uh, of uh, water sources that allowed for the crops, allowed for the livestock, allowed for everything they had and enjoyed that God gave to them. A land that was flowing with milk and honey. You can't have milk without cattle, and cattle need to eat grass, and grass has to be watered, and the water exemplifies the great blessing that God had poured out upon them. And it was a peaceful water that He gave them. It was they—they they didn't earn it; God gave it to them. But instead of taking what God gave them by His gracious hand, they rejoiced over Rezin, and the son of Remaliah. Rezin is the king of Syria. They found their joy in a pagan king who hated their God. They, they found their security in him. They were going to him for security and stability and alliance. Never mind the grace I showed you, God says, you went to the king of Assyria or Syria instead. Verse 7, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. He's speaking to Isaiah from a southern Israel perspective, saying he's bringing to them the north now the waters of the river mighty and many the king of assyria and all his glory and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks now the relative glory of the king of assyria is a complete joke compared to the glory of god and that would be not be uh, an irony missed by the reader but it was the glory of the world that they loved so much it was the glory that was similar to resin's glory. It was temporal, and they loved it, and they counted on it, and guess what? The glory of man will come upon you, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. He's using a flood to describe the Assyrian power coming over Israel. He wants to paint a vivid description of how a flood advances. Think about a flood. It doesn't usually stop. It just keeps edging forward. It keeps, keeps breaking into new channels. Unless you have a, a solid wall going up, it's going to find ways to creep in. If you ever had water in your house at any level, it's amazing how destructive it is. It's hard to contain once it lets loose. If you have a leak in your basement or something, it just keeps going everywhere. I walked into uh, my downstairs one time, and I saw water coming down from right above where the refrigerator was. It was coming from everywhere. The little line that goes into the ice maker busted. It's so hard to contain. It finds every crack. It finds every place. And the floodwaters of Assyria will come in. And Judah, before you get smug, realize that that floodwater that will come and take the north, that north that provides a buffer between you and the nations, it will be gone. And the floodwaters will advance, and you'll feel it. You'll know it. It says in verse 8, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspring spread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. O Emmanuel, covenant. God's with them, but he's warning them that you will also go the way of the north if you continue on this path, and you will feel the pressure of Assyria coming upon you, though God be with them for sure. There are faithful people in Judah, even though they may be in the minority, but they would feel the pain that would come when this oppression hit the north, and eventually they would feel something similar themselves, God had a remnant, a faithful remnant, uh, a people who understood the grace of God, but yet they felt the pain of being in a place that had turned against God. You know, it doesn't take long for you who know history to just look at what happens whenever there's a godless power that is in play for very long. It always, always ends up in death and misery and destruction for the people who live there. Uh, it may be, take a long time for it to happen, and there are those extreme examples. I mean, think of, of how it was when Edi uh, Amin is in Uganda, a great place now in so many ways, but the horror that they went through under that godlessness. Um, think of, of Lenin and Stalin and what happened in the, the former Soviet Union and all the ways in which communism and that totalitarian approach to imposing a non-religious state, it just killed millions of people by its philosophy, played out in practicality. When godlessness is brought to bear, even under the name of religion, like Nazi Germany, they had religious overtones, but it was godless, it was demonic at its core, and it led to the misery and the death of many, many, many people. And that's always what godlessness in leadership promotes and provides, and that's what it will do over time. And it can be staved off, but it will always have its way if left to go. A nation's sins brings tough times for all of its citizens, for sure. And even believers have to bear up under such tough times. But the darkness of what would come upon Israel is further evidenced if you go down to verse 20, which kind of culminates the chapter, which will lead into that glorious chapter 9 that we'll come to next week. But verse 20 says, to the teaching and to the testimony. This is a call to the word of God. Often the word as it, was existent at that time the words being written as god's calling prophets they had of course uh the books of moses and they had other historical books the teaching and the testimony they would divide them into categories but he's talking about the word of god to the word of god if they will not speak according to this word it is because they have no dawn a way to see how dark it had become is to know that the people who will not receive the word it's because they have no dawn. There's no new day for them. Judgment has fallen. Their time is up. Uh, the reason they don't receive the word of God as you're preaching it or teaching it is because the darkness has been cast. Uh, it's over. There's no dawn, no beginning of new day, just darkness, just gloom. Verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they, show, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the picture of reality for Israel in its rebellion, where it had found itself by this time. But this is the fate of godlessness and sinful rebellion. I'm not suggesting this is an exact paradigm for our country or other countries, but it is a general truth that when a place opposes God, unless God graciously brings salt and light to that place, there will be a time when God's patience runs out. There's darkness and there's more darkness. There's gloom and there's more gloom. And chapter 9 reveals light, light that we long to see and look forward to hearing more about, being exposed to. But nestled in the middle of this chapter, the verses I just skipped over to show you the dark side, the dark portion of what was reality for those who were living at that time. We have the light coming in chapter 9, but we have immediate provision for the people living in that time. People had to have a message of hope or a message of clarity about what God was calling them to as they were believers living in a place that no longer believed. When we find ourselves as Christians, a people within a people, we're called to follow God no matter what befalls us. And I think we find, starting in verse 9, I think we find some real helpful direction that's given to Isaiah that we can see applied in our life too. Now, I guess I should not just assume everyone agrees, but I think that it's pretty demonstrable that that people who are Christians as Scripture defines Christianity, those who are rightly related with Jesus, the Son of God, because they know their sinners and they have faith in his finished work for their being right with God. They can't be right with God except for Jesus' righteousness credited to them by faith. That's what a Christian is by scriptural definition. And the scripture is the authority, it's the revelation that teaches us that. So Jesus as the Savior and the scripture as the way that we know who the Savior is and What God's will is, that's what biblical Christianity is about. People who believe that, who who uphold that, who celebrate that, live by that. Biblical Christianity, I think you have to see as something that is, is endangered, if not already in the minority where we are. That's tough. You know, I've talked to people over the course of the last year and asked several questions, especially depending on how old they were, what generation they were raised in. I'm very curious to see the different perspective from our teenagers all the way up to our, the most elderly in our congregation. And when you ask them questions about what do they think about our country in Christianity, the church in Christianity, the view people have of Jesus in Christianity uh, or uh, in our culture, or what do they think about, and usually this is the thing all of us think of, the ethics of our society. We see how many things are, are unbiblical or sinful, and we have response to that. Or we feel like, oh, it's so bad. Things are getting bad. Now, if you're over 60, I've found that your general response is it's distraught in, in, I don't mean in an ungodly way, just simply that it's shocking. It's like, I can't believe in my lifetime, I have heard this said many times, that so much has changed. I remember when... And they would talk about Christianity, and they wouldn't say it's that we were a Christian nation, but they would say that there was a consensus among most people that we that I knew in my neighborhood, or in my school, or or my workplace, even, that was generally Christian based. Um, and that's gone now. It's not like that at all, all anymore. Uh, very, very different, and somewhat shocking for someone who lives in, who grew up in that generation. Then there is that group, the forty to the sixty-ish. That's my span we tend to be a bit more cynical because we watch the process kind of happen before our own eyes. The postmodern, uh, pro-relativistic morals, the idea that there's not one truth, there's a bunch of truths and it's good for you but not good for me, don't impose it on me. If you do impose it on me, you're kind of a bigot, now you're a hater. Uh, that kind of developed over, uh, th- over our last 20 years or so. So we're a little more skeptical, we a little more realistic that, yeah, it has come to this, but we've got to fight it. That's what we feel like. Then there are those who are younger than 40, especially those who are in the 20 to 35 range. Most of you don't know any time span in your life where there was a Christian consensus, so to speak, where people generally thought Christianly. You don't know that. The friends you have, the people you hang out with, the people you work with, those who you know, they don't think like that. They haven't even gone to church before. They couldn't tell you what John 3.16 is. Uh, you know a post-Christian place. That's what you're aware of. For all of us, I think some of the facts have to just play out before us so we realize that the things you're seeing as evidence in society, the, the the changing morals, the changing practices, laws that look certain assert- they're just evidences of where we are in a post-Christian era, at least in this place. It's not to say that Christ could not reassert his church according to his will and by his power. We pray for that. We live for that. But we have to recognize we could also be in a time of enduring being few who believe something. And that could mean difficult times for us. It will mean difficult times for culture at large if we keep going a sinful road, a rebellious road. It never ends in a different way. It's only a matter of time. I was reading... On this subject, and I found it interesting, uh, different writers who were giving their estimation of the situation. Richard Stearns, who's the president of World Vision, a group that's been under some duress for some good reason and some unjustified. But he was writing for the Huffington Post just two years ago. He's kind of their token Christian writer that will come on there. There's a few others. He said, There isn't any question that American culture is in transition from a dominantly Christian culture to a dominantly secular culture. Rod Dreyer, who I think writes many good pieces, says, We have to accept that we really are living in a culturally post-Christian nation. The fundamental norms Christians have long been able to depend on no longer exist. Another guy that I don't agree with most of the time, but I liked how he said this, David Davenport, writing for Forbes magazine, said, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of secularity, will be our new national hymn as America enters the uncharted territory of a post-Christian era. Long known as a Christian nation, he puts it in quotes, the U.S. has turned sharply in a secular direction, and he attributes it to several political things like trickle-down influence of the elites and so forth, the things you hear on radio all the time. But the truth is, if you do a survey, we have found multiple of these surveys to say a similar thing, that Americans describing themselves as Christians has declined about 10% in a seven-year period. 10 percent's a lot in seven years. That's the time, you know, if you think about a student entering middle school to the time they graduate high school, a 10% change. Those professing no religion grew 50% in the same time. And fewer than 6 in 10 millennials, ages 18 to 33, fewer than 6 in 10 millennials, affiliate with any branch of Christianity. 66% of those age 65 and over believe that being Christian is an important part of being American. But only 35% of those ages 18 to 29 agree. I could go on with these facts and figures. I think you probably are aware of the shift. But Christians are called to stay the course, the course of faithfulness to God, no matter what the nation's situation is. That's what you have with the remnant who received the word from Isaiah. They're living in a place that is ultimately going to be under judgment. I mean, eventually Judah fell the same way the north did to Babylon. That's kind of the spoiler. But there are revivals that happen, and that's what we pray for. That's what we long for. There are revivals that happen in Judah because of what they see happen in the north, and God prolongs it. That's at least what we should hope for and pray for here. We should pray for complete revival and turnaround without question. But in the meantime, you have to face some of the realities of the place and the day in which you live. I think this text gives us in these verses, nine down to verse uh, 19, six different ways the people of God can remain faithful even though we're in the minority. I'll say them to you quick quickly first, and then we'll walk through them. First, know that God with us is more powerful than any human force. Second, Don't walk in the fearful, paranoid, scared way of the people. Third, fear God only. Four, believe God's word. Five, hope in God's hand of provision. And six, plead with God for help, not false powers. Let's look at the text and you'll see how it unfolds. Verse 9 and verse 10. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. In other words, the powers that be. You can get strong. You can build up your armor. But you'll be shattered. The things that you are holding to that are supposedly giving you security and stability, military might. It's an illusion when you're facing a people who God is with. The people of God, of all people, with a book that records improbable victory after improbable victory, should know that God with us is more powerful than any human force. And that's what he says to Isaiah to relay to the people who are under this duress. Know that God with us is more powerful than any human force. That's what he's telling them. So to the nations and to those who are bringing this oppression, for the people who are rebelling against God and oppressing his people, you can build up your plans and build up your power, but in the end, you'll be shattered. And we have to know that's true as a people of God. Whatever era we live in, and not fall prey to trusting in man more than God. One of my favorite pictures of this in Scripture has to be Daniel's friends when they are confronted with worshiping God. They're told to worship this idol. They won't worship the idol. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown into the fiery furnace. And before he does so, he gives them a chance to recant. I think this is a picture for any Christian to lay hold of as a real encouragement. If you live in a day when you are pressed to do something you shouldn't do, know that God is more powerful than the person even who could throw you in the furnace. And the answer that those those three friends give, is so telling and helpful for us. They don't assume that God's will will be to deliver them from that hardship. But they think he can. And listen to what they say. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But this is my favorite part of the verse, verse 18 in chapter 3 of Daniel. But if not if I do burn, if I do get thrown into the fiery furnace, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Know that God with us is more powerful than any human force, no matter what befalls us. The second thing I think that will encourage us living in a time when we are not uh, in the minority or in the majority, excuse me, do not walk in the fearful, paranoid, scared way of the people. I don't know how else to summarize verse 11 and verse 12. Look what it says. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Don't follow their philosophies. Don't follow their thinking. Don't follow their news. Don't follow their their paranoid-driven conspiracy theory talk. Turn off the radio. Rush doesn't know what the Bible knows. Michael doesn't get it. Glenn, he's a Mormon. I mean, come on. Let's go to the Scriptures and be concerned about what the Scripture says and not about conspiracy theories about everything. I didn't say it. God said it. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. We are Christians. We are not scared of the world. We're not scared of political systems. We're not scared of any of it. And I don't trust in my conservatism or my economics or any of that. I trust in God. And I trust in the word. And that's what he tells the Israelites to do. Even though the Assyrians are going to come, the flood's going to come, it's all going to come upon you. But do not walk in the way of this people. If the people do not walk in the way of the scripture, do not walk their way. It only leads in one direction, and it's not good. Something else. Fear God only. It's connected, obviously. Verse 13 down to verse 15, you see this. Very clear command. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And don't be scared of the Assyrians. Don't be afraid of northern Israel and their alliances. Don't even be afraid of those in Judah who are not walking according to my ways, no matter how powerful they may look. I should be your fear, God says. You should dread me, not them. In fact, Jesus echoes this exact same thing when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God's the only one we should fear. Verse 14 of our text. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. In other words, know this is what God's going to do. So fear him, dread him, reverence him. Depend upon him. Trust in him. Revere him as holy because guess what he's going to do? This is what he's going to do to Israel. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. The God who will do this work of redemption, who will bring Messiah, who will be that rock of stumbling, he's the one you should fear. He's the one who's ordering all things that come to pass. By the way, the beautiful fulfillment of this in the New Testament, this passage describing God becoming a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel comes in First Peter chapter 2. Listen to what First Peter says. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. The stone is Jesus. Israel rejects Jesus. Verse 8 of 1 Peter 2, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what Jesus is. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, talk to believers now who trust on Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. The people of God are those who call upon Christ. The chosen nation are those who call upon Jesus. It's not a nation any longer, it's a people. And it transcends all ethnic boundaries. So, fear God only. That's what we do in the times in which we live. Verse 16 says it as simply as can be. Believe God's word. When God says it, believe it. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. You remember earlier he he bid them to believe the teaching and believe the testimony, and if people didn't, you knew they did not have a dawn. There was a sign of their no new day coming. They were already under judgment. So he says to Isaiah, and by extension to us, believe God's word. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Actively engage in the content of God's word. With so much information out there, our filter has to be the word of God. If we spend a tenth of the time studying in the Word of God as we do listening to stuff or reading things, imagine how well-equipped we would be to process all that information. We're shaped by the Word of God. So bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Things may be tough, we may be oppressed, the majority may be against us, but bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. It could be difficult for us. Things could change. It could get rough. But bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples, the remnant. Verse 17 and verse 18 gives us yet another encouragement for living in such times. He tells Isaiah in the midst of this, hope in God's hand of provision. Hope in his hand of provision. If God says he'll provide it for us, he will provide it for us. Verse 17 says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. He hasn't shown clear redemption at this moment. And I will hope in him. Believe in him, Isaiah says. Hope in God's provision and hope that he will fulfill his promises as he always has. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents. He's talking as a prophet. Now, personally, as my, his wife has these children, they are signs of what God will do. And he knows that God has confirmed his promises over and over again. And he will again. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Be patient knowing that God will fulfill his promises, we hope, in a time that is seemingly hopeless. The final thing you'll see in verse 19 that may seem a little bit fantastical to us because none of us are as familiar, per, hopefully, with going to mediums to find the future. But it evidences a distrust in God, a disbelief in God, because God is the only one who is powerful enough to change things. That's why we pray to him. We don't go to someone else for the future. Only God holds a future. And a common practice among the pagan nations around Israel had been adopted by Israel. And we see it in verse 19, he says, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. When the people and culture say, go seek this out, go look for, this is how you'll find your answer. This is where you can get revelation. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? You have the God of the universe who has made you right together with himself through Christ. Why on earth would you go another mediator? even if it comes in the guise of a church who says you can talk to the dead that's not what the passage says why would you talk to the dead when you can inquire of your god should the inquire of the dead on behalf of the living why would i go to a dead person on behalf of someone who's alive we have a living savior we pray to him and he's god these are i believe nestled in this passage important encouragements for us today. Know that God with us is more powerful than any human force, no matter what it feels like in a culture. Don't walk in the fearful, paranoid, scared ways of the culture. Fear God only. He's the only one we should fear. Believe God's word. It's always true. It will outlast all these fads. Hope in God's hand. He's never, ever relinquished on a promise. And by all means, go to God for your help. Not false powers. Yes, we end on kind of a dark note. So I guess I should just call the sermon darkness. That wouldn't have been too exciting. But you know, there are times of darkness. But we are people of light. We're given light, the light of the revelation we have before us and the promise of Jesus, who we have seen through Isaiah already and will see be the fulfillment of the darkness that comes from this passage. The darkness of chapter 8 will give way to the light of chapter 9. Because it says in the beginning of chapter 9, those beautiful words we read every year at Advent, but I'm so happy we're reading them in October. I'm so happy we're going to sing some songs, that are Advent songs in October. It would only be better if this was July. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I mean, it's a heaviness when you read chapter 8. But the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has sh- the light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and you know the rest, and we'll study it next week. That return to the long-term prophecy that will be fulfilled in Jesus is what gives us the constant encouragement and joy and light that we need. Let's together bow as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we know that Jesus has given us eternal life. Jesus has given us purpose for life. Lord, we know that we will face tribulation in this world, but we know that you are with us. Lord God, I pray for your strength. I ask you to fill us with your spirit so that we might be faithful in these days of difficulty. Lord, we don't have it nearly as bad as so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. So I pray for them as well that these truths would be cemented in their hearts and in their lives, in ours as well, as we consider uh, what our situation is or may be. Lord, Help us, strengthen us, give us faithfulness so that the light of Christ would be shown and that many would see and trust in him. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let us together turn to 196, and we will stand and sing the first two verses of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and this will be also uh, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. You may be seated.